This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The biblical psalmist speaking to God declares, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. And that is only one of many verses in the scriptures of all three monotheistic religions that reference attachment or clinging to God. But non-monotheistic religions take a different view of attachment. Mahatma Gandhi is reported to have said, quote, freedom from all attachment is the realization of God as truth. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Institute series on ideas. Today's guest, Per Granqvist, has the courage to take on the complex subject of spirituality and attachment in his new book, Attachment in Religion and Spirituality, A Wider View. Per Granqvist is professor of developmental psychology at Stockholm University in Sweden. He has studied the attachment religion connection since the mid 1990s. Per Gran Christ, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Rene, and I'm impressed by your pronunciation of my last name. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, let's uh, let's start by uh, telling us a little bit about your own religious orientation. Was there a spiritual or religious background to your childhood? Well, uh, it's actually, I should be able to answer that question, but uh, I don't really think I have the words for it. Um, I do open the book by saying that I have spiritual experiences in the sense of feeling an interconnection to something outside of myself that I don't actually know what it is. Uh, But I am... I don't have any formalized religious background and uh, I don't have any particular denomination that I go to. So um, most of all, I'm genuinely intellectually curious about the psychological foundations of spirituality and and religion without being either a part of those movements or uh, against those movements. So I'm neither a theist nor an atheist but I'm a genuine agnostic, I think you could say. Give our listeners a brief introduction to the basics of attachment theory and research in psychology. Sure. Uh, attachment theory is an evolutionary analysis of um, mammals' strong proclivity to develop emotional bonds to their caregivers. And the theory focuses in particular on primates and humans more than any other primates. Um, and then, and, and then oh, uh, it's a, it, all, it, it does not only deal with the evolutionary analysis, but also with the consequences for the individual's development uh, of how those attachment relationships develop and the individual differences that uh, develop in those relationships. 
in terms of human development, uh, talk a little bit about the development of attachment from primary caregivers to surrogate objects and so on through childhood and later. Sure. Um, so the primary attachment relationship or relationships, because it could be more than one, develops during the first year of life for humans uh, as a function of um, mutual physical interaction between the infant and its caregivers. Um, and it's, it's a very active and visible phenomenon around one year of age when the child has become increasingly physically mobile so the child can move away from its caregivers uh, you can see that the, uh, occasionally the child sort of is being pulled by a rubber band almost to stay close to, to the parents. Uh, and it doesn't take so long for children to start to use surrogate objects of attachment that they can use when their caregivers or primary attachment figures, as we also call them, are unavailable or inaccessible. So, for example, they can use a blanket or a teddy bear to sort of load with security and feelings of safety when the caregiver is not around. And that's something that really young children do, one or two-year-olds. But when children get more advanced cognitively, they also start to realize that things that they cannot see or smell or hear can also exist. And so we see a number of invisible characters that children start to draw upon as surrogate objects of attachment, not least imaginary peers that they can use. Usually it's sort of part of play for children, but in some cases these imaginary peers take on a very concrete, almost real existence for children. And that happens especially among children who live with social deprivation or loneliness. Okay, that's very helpful. Uh, and now let's talk a little bit about the religion part of your title. Uh, many writers have agreed that uh, religions, generally speaking, uh, consist of the three Bs, belonging, behaving, and believing. Uh, do you find that to be a useful rule of thumb when you are doing research on religion? Um, yes, uh, but one of the things, uh, I guess uh, one of my points of departure when it comes to religion and spirituality is that it's it's really difficult to sort of reduce these phenomena to some essence that only comprises three parts you know um, so beliefs if you would allow me to include more representational aspects of of it i mean sometimes we use belief as a formalized belief system but i don't think that that really captures the the depth of what religion is about i think it's more a question of partly unconscious representations um that beliefs may then be, you know, culturally constructed around more uh, automatic or unconscious representations that we have. But if you allow these terms to be really broad, 
then I would not object to them. But I, but, but sort of, I would want affect and representations to be included in any definition of religion. And your thesis, if I understood it correctly, is that for believers, for the faithful, for those who are religious, God functions as a, an attachment figure, a non-corporeal attachment figure. Does anything serve that role for non-believers? Um, oh, yes, certainly. I mean, part of what I'm doing in the book is I'm, uh, uh, you know, wrestling quite a bit with the definition of an attachment figure and an attachment relationship. Uh, and so I'm glad, Renee, that you mention a non-corporeal attachment figure because most attachment figures are, of course, corporeal. That is the case for a, a, par- a parent. Uh, that's the case for a romantic partner. Uh, but God is not corporeal. So, and I, I um, argue that we need to include non-corporeal characters also in the list of attachment figures because humans do cognitively relate to the world as if things that they cannot perceive uh, that have any corporeal existence still exist, right? Right. Well, it's. Um, I guess it's a, a $10,000 question what non-believers uh, use uh, that are non-corporeal figures. Um, and the reason why I hesitate in giving the answer is that it all hinges on your definition of what an attachment is. Like you could... Uh, colloquially perhaps use the word attachment to say that uh, you know rock fans have an attachment to Bob Dylan for example or perhaps Mick Jagger Uh, you could say that football fans have an attachment to their football team uh, and so on Um, but I think it's a little premature to call those things attachment because I have not seen empirical research that actually shows that those relationships would um, correspond to the criteria uh, that John Bowlby introduced for defining attachments. So one of the things we've done uh, in our work on on religion is to actually test the different aspects of an attachment relationship that should be present in order for something to fulfill uh, an attachment function. And we have usually found pretty persuasive support, I think, for the idea that God is being mentally constructed and used as, uh, as a form of attachment. And certainly the quote from the Psalms with which I began our interview would support your position. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Clinging and attachment to God. Now, um, there are different attachment styles that uh, not only can be perceived in childhood, but also in adulthood. Talk a little bit about those different attachment styles and how they impact uh, romantic and adult peer relationships before we move up to religion. All right. Would you like me to start with children or start with adults? Start with adults. Okay. Well, so we typically distinguish between four patterns of attachment. Uh, whether it's categories or dimensions can be debated, but uh, let me speak of them as uh, categories now because I think it's more didactically useful. 
So the first and the, the largest pattern of attachment would um, fortunately be secure attachment, which is characterized by confidence in others' availability and also in the self's lovability. So we usually describe that as a positive representation of both others and the self. So the person is at ease with dependency and closeness in relationships uh, and is not very fearful about abandonment, for example. And then we distinguish between three different forms of insecure attachment. The first one of those is avoidant attachment, which is characterized by a negative model of others as rejecting and unavailable coupled with a defensively positive representation of the self as someone who is self-sufficient and doesn't really need other people. So avoidant individuals are usually uncomfortable with closeness and dependency. They tend to shun away from that. And another descriptor for these avoidant individuals would be dismissing attachment. Um, And there's a second subgroup of avoidant individuals that uh, are sometimes uh, attended to in the literature, and they they are known as fearful avoidant. Um, And unlike dismissing avoidant individuals, fearful avoidant individuals also tend to represent the self in a fairly negative manner. So that means that they represent both others and themselves negatively, So they fear closeness and intimacy, and yet they perceive themselves to be weak and passive. So at the same time, they really do have an urge to be taken care of by others. But that creates a dilemma for them because they represent others in a negative fashion. So fearful avoidance would be sort of the most serious form of insecure adult attachment. And the fourth and final pattern uh, of adult attachment styles is known as preoccupied, which is characterized by, uh, well, the opposite of dismissing in the sense that preoccupied adults, they crave closeness. Um, and so they have a, a positive model of others, but very inconsistently so. They really crave others' closeness. They represent themselves negatively as passive and helpless, so they need to be taken care of by others. Uh, And yet when relationships start to uh, develop over time, they reveal that they have a really conflictual representation of of the other person, so they start to be controlling and very jealous, for example, over time. Uh, So a lot of... um, It's sometimes characterized as an emotional roller coaster for these individuals in relationships with others and this is um, what i just gave you is um, the um, characterization of the four patterns of attachment in the social psychology literature so it's about interpersonal attachments but there are many different ways of thinking about attachment uh, so there's a for example a different strand of methods and uh classifications um, relating to developmental psychology and the adult attachment interview. But I guess for our purposes here, what I have just said may suffice. 
And so the largest group who are securely attached, are they the ones who are likely to continue whatever their family religious tradition is? Yes, that's one of our most reliable findings, uh, is that um, secure attachment tends to facilitate that the offspring, the human offspring in this case, uh, you know, loves their parents and is receptive to what their parents are teaching them. So although they are autonomous and can think for themselves and are curious and exploratory, they do tend to land pretty close to their parents when it comes to religious convictions. So yes. And then tell us about the various kinds of insecurely attached people. What what are they likely to do religiously? Yeah, so they seem to have a, a, a very different um, developmental pathway leading them to become religious or spiritual than what is the case for, for securely attached um, adults. Um, so what we usually find for those who have insecure attachment is that they um, become actively religious in very stressful periods in their lives when their habitual um, defenses surrounding attachment sort of crumble or break down and they experience, you know, uh, suffering, that's when they tend to call upon God. So we see a heavy overrepresentation of sudden religious conversions for these individuals, and those conversions in turn uh, usually occur in life contexts of emotional turmoil, various forms of crisis, um, dependency on... Um, um, you know, alcohol or, or other forms of drugs, for example. So it's much more emotional drama leading to their uh, religiosity and spirituality, usually. Would you say that's the paradigm of uh, I once was lost and now I'm found? Yes, uh, I would say it is. Uh, and it's uh, the paradigm sort of uh, of a lot of Protestant uh, ideas about being born again, you know, um, yes, it is. Any any other kind of uh, typical or predictable relationship between uh, insecurely attached people and religion? Yeah, certainly. I can mention two, two other aspects that are central and that I discuss at some length in the book. One is that although they have these sudden religious conversions where they sort of cry out to God and they experience being born again, a new morning in their lives when they feel loved and taken care of, over time they do tend to express their uh, underlying negative representations of themselves or others also in their relationship with God and their relationship to religion at large. So they usually fall back to periods of intense doubting um, and negative representations of God. So they may, when we subtly activate uh, their attachment systems, for example, if they are avoidant, they actually show signs of avoiding to think about God rather than turning to God, as you would expect them to do if they find God to be so loving and caring, for example. So... 
In other words, they have some uh, mentally incoherent or inconsistent inklings when it comes to themselves and God. At the conscious level, it's all love. Um, but at the unconscious level, there tends to be signs of insecurity expressing themselves. And over time, these signs of insecurity take to, uh, tend to become rather pronounced. So that's, that's one issue to consider. And another one is that we have found for a particular group of insecure individuals uh, that we usually describe as disorganized. And that would be the conceptual or theoretical counterpart of fearful avoidance, uh, that those individuals can uh, are inclined to have altered states of consciousness that border upon dissociative states and uh, they can be expressed in a religious or spiritual context also as mystical experiences for example and sometimes marked by by fright as well uh, so i have um, a full chapter dealing with altered states of consciousness that are sort of on the fringe of mainstream religion or in some cases even outside of mainstream religion uh, that do tend to go hand in hand with um, attachment disorganization uh, you also note on a, a more healthy side of the continuum uh, that sometimes religious attachment that began as compensation for attachment deficits may wind up being reparative and growth-promoting. How does that work? Yeah, well, I wish I knew, you know, but the, we have a lot of inconsistent findings uh, about that. Like what I just mentioned earlier was to say that insecurity tends to linger and become expressed uh, in the individual's relationship with God over time. But that's certainly not always the case. Um, so some people actually uh, remain steady on their new path and uh, appear to earn a certain measure of attachment security over time from their relationship with God. But what the actual mechanisms are there psychologically, we just don't know. And it's hard to do research on this because it appears to be a fairly rare phenomenon. Um, but it looks like um, the religious community can fill a very important function there for the um, new convert, so to speak, to continue to have a sense of being held by God and the religious community um, rather than the person just acting on his or her own feelings and representations uh, that won't be as enduring over time. But I think I'm that glad. But but religion does... I mean, the way I think about it, actually, is that religion is a something that has occurred over... A long period of cultural evolution and in part is psychologically effective because it, it addresses issues of uncertainty and insecurity among humans and it does so occasionally in a fairly effective way. So just the idea of God's love being unconditional, for example, must be something that is really you know, heartfelt for a person who doesn't usually represent him or herself as um, as lovable, 
but now is exposed to a theology and ideally also a religious group where love is being practiced uh, that can do wonders to that person's uh, sense of worth over time. I'm glad you explained that because uh, whenever we look through a single lens or a mid-level theory like uh, the attachment theory, um, it, it fails to take into account the other things that, for example, religion does provide, community support, sustainable relationships, meaning and rituals, all sorts of things that, that help hold the individual and the group yeah. together. So it's, uh, it's good that you explain that. <laughs> well, yeah, th- and th- I, thanks. Oh, sorry for interrupting you, but uh, no. I just want to say that uh, that's um, really something that I'm trying to to do throughout uh, the book, and that's part of the reason why the subheading is a wider view as well. I don't want a narrow view of the attachment religion connection to become the standard attachment take on the psychology of religion but rather look at how attachment works together with multiple other psychological factors beyond attachment itself because that's basically what uh, what occurs in humans lives right right now one of the things that you wrote was (coughs) very uh, surprising to me Um, Of course, we know that many things can be attachment surrogates, pets, drugs, art, uh, all sorts of things that people become attached to. Uh, But you write the following sentence on page 162. In a highly secularized country where the notion of God is more or less cognitively inaccessible, other attachment surrogates are more likely to be relied upon. Now, a religious person, a religious or spiritual person reading that would say, are you kidding? My psychological needs could be just as easily met by a pet, uh, <laughs> no matter how much I love my dog, uh, as it is by a transcendent idea of God. You probably weren't suggesting that. Perhaps you can explain. Yeah, let me explain that. Well, Um, I think there are many good reasons to um, argue against the inevitability of religious thoughts because religions look so very different uh, across um, cultures and across historical time. And we know that humans' minds are flexible, so they can construct various forms of um, uh, attachment surrogates that are non-corporeal. And so the idea of a big, uh, you know, a big God, a a personal God who sees everything and uh, and responds to the individual's needs uh, as an attachment figure is a fairly uh, new construction if you look at the history of human evolution, uh, maybe it goes back to the agricultural revolution like some ten to 15,000 years ago. But prior to that, God was not primarily an attachment figure but had a lot of uh, other functions, not least related to 
you know, harvesting and controlling nature and that kind of stuff. Right. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it's easy to become ethnocentric and also centric about our own time and our own construction of God, because that's certainly not how it's always looked. Um, and by the same token, with the flexibility of the human mind uh, in mind, uh, we can see that we can take our attachment systems to a lot of different objects, and especially as we mature and, and become older. So pets are really, I think, a solid example of uh, something that humans occasionally do attach to, Um dogs in particular, and if you look at the evolution of dogs, they've been selectively bred by humans since the agricultural revolution at least to become good companions to humans, which doesn't mean that they only serve as attachment figures, of course. They can also hunt and, uh, you know, uh, can also, they have been selectively bred also to look almost like babies, so humans uh, can take care of the dogs as well as to attach to them. Um, but I don't know. I mean, if religious people have the sense that there is something primary about their attachment to a God that is constructed as an attachment figure, then I think they should probably reconsider that, uh, if I may say so. (laughs) You may absolutely say so. Now, a lot of research has shown that there's a positive correlation between religion and mental health. Mm. And it seems to imply, at least my reading of it, that the the common ground is all about fitting into the norms of your culture, religious societies. In religious societies, religious people are more mentally healthy. Mm. And in secular cultures, religious people are not. Could it possibly be that simple? Not quite that simple. Because if you look at secular countries, you will see that people, relatively secular, I should say, because all societies have uh, religion within themselves. So the question is whether religion is culturally normative or not. But if you look at the relatively secular societies, it's not like more religious people uh, are less psychologically healthy. Uh, it tends to be more a zero kind of relationship between religiosity and and mental health in more secular uh, countries. No, but I, you know, I think that's one of the fascinating things with culture is that um, if you adapt to the culture and you um, behave in fairly conformist ways, it's a sort of a sad sign, in my view, of uh, of adaptation. The person fits in, which means that they won't be looked at as weird. They will be able to reproduce to a larger extent, uh, for example. So um, um, I really do think that there, the cultural normativity is something quite important to, to bear in mind when it comes to, to looking at association between associations between mental health and religion. Uh, it really does seem that if you neglect that, it really creates an incomplete picture of what's uh, going on. Uh, but but in a in a culture where where religion is normative, of course, religion does tend to fill important functions for the individuals, uh, like providing uh, a, a sense of a personal relationship with God and um, 
a, an identity within a religious community where there's a lot of social and existential support as well. Uh, what's right. a little bit interesting here when it comes to more secular countries is that they seem to have replaced the idea of the religious community and God and the church as the, you know, the pillar of society with um, other secular institutions. But perhaps you will ask questions about that. I, I might, but please go ahead. Do- no, so what, what we can see in the Scandinavian countries in particular, but other parts of Europe as well, is that the welfare state has expanded quite markedly from the early 20th century up to the present day. And if you look at the development of religion in our societies, it really is uh, hard to deny that the rise and the spread of the welfare state uh, has attenuated the importance of religion in people's lives. Um, So because the welfare state, with its provisions of multiple forms of insurance, like daycare, education, healthcare, unemployment benefits, pensions, and so on, uh, they, that they can replace, that these insurances can replace religion over time really has to do with the fact that people gain a real sense of security and safety from being in a population where the welfare system is uh, working effectively. So the psychological need for religion diminishes over time. Well, that's a a very interesting point because uh, twin studies worldwide show about a 40 to 50% genetic component to the belief in God. And uh, critics of the attachment theory, like uh, Jerome Kagan, uh, argue that temperament and genetics and a couple of social variables like social class will explain many things that are now attributed to attachment. Mm. Given what you just said about uh, the welfare state, how, how does this all fit together? Yeah, well... Um, I would have to give a really long answer, I think, to that question to do it justice. But let me try to be brief and say a few things. And you may have to remind me about the question because I have noticed that when I start to think about twin studies and behavioral genetics, I tend to lose um, uh, lose the original question <laughs> because it's complicated. Well, well, but, but what I can say is, yeah, with, let's start with twin studies and yeah, and genetics and genetics and um, what they are looking at there is not um, how you know it, it's the variation within a twin population when mm-hmm. it comes to belief in God. So it's not like it's uh, belief in God is explained to. F- 40 to 50% by belief in God. It is variations in belief in God within a particular segment of the population, twins. Um, And why is that important? Well, because twins are being raised generally a little bit more similarly to one another than the average two people in the general population. So there's a restriction in range, uh, in environmental variation in twin populations. And if you adjust for that statistically, typically 
the heritability estimate uh, tends to decrease a little bit, which is not to say that it's not there at all. It's just I'm saying that I think 40 to 50% is a little bit high. I would guess it's probably the true estimate would be somewhere around 20 to 30%. Um, but certainly I have never made a claim that attachment would be the only cause uh, of how people represent God. Uh, one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is to say that attachment is one important component uh, that adds and interacts with um, other components, including temperament, uh, mm -hmm. that are expressed in the individual's development. Development is a truly complex phenomenon in its own right, even if you look at fairly basic things. And if you, if you look at something like religion or spirituality and the development that lead to individual differences in those that's truly complex and i would never say that it can be reduced to attachment but i'd be uh, you know so i call for research that looks at the interplay of attachment and, and temperament um, another thing to say is that i think uh, attachment research over the decades has shown that kagan's rather bold initial claims that attachment can basically be reduced to temperament and social learning it just it can, it's a position that can't be upheld any longer because twin studies actually show that the heritability of of attachment patterns is uh, very close to zero if not zero it depends on what study you consult uh, so it looks to me like if genetics or individual differences in genetics are important for individual differences in attachment it's more um uh, a nature it's more a sort of uh, gene environment interaction question rather than temperament or genetics replacing attachment that is to say that people with some temperamental or genetic dispositions may be more inclined to develop a particular form of attachment but for them to do that it also requires that the environment or the caregiver's responsiveness to the child is also in line with that particular pattern. So it's genes and environments in combination, uh, neither one of them in isolation. You're certainly right that development is complex and it continues through adulthood. Mm. In fact, in late life, uh, some people have reported experiencing what the literature calls gerotranscendence, yeah. a state of calm, peace of mind, implying a transcendent perspective. Uh, is that necessarily a spiritual or even mystical experience or something else? Well, that, I think it's an excellent question, and it's a fascinating state. Uh, of course, not all elders experience it either. Um, well, if you look at the words that are being used by people in gerotranscendent states, they do tend to use words that are very mystical and um, more or less impossible to disentangle from uh, mystical experiences. It looks like sort of they look like mirror images of one another. Now, the problem with human experience, in a way, is that it's always being filtered through language. If we try to describe something, we need to use language, right? And so right. people who are living in cultures where religion is or has been 
culturally dominant will probably grab for those words to characterize uh, the states that they experience if the states are filled with harmony, you know, light and the sense of being held. Uh, it will be difficult for them to grab onto any other words than the words that are also being used to describe mystical experiences. So it's hard for us, in other words, to determine what the actual experience is regardless of words. And that's true of, of all mystical experiences. By definition, they are ineffable. Right, exactly. <laughs> and yet, that didn't stop you. You had the courage to uh, report uh, four of your interviewees who said they had experienced altered states. Uh, can you say what the four had in common? Well, the, the, they had s several things in common. Um, all of them had... Um, unresolved states about loss or trauma in their own lives. Um, and um, the other important thing to highlight is that all of them had um, experiences that were very, very important, life-changing for them in one way or the other, and that they attribute to spirituality or religion themselves. So the object of their experience uh, it was interpreted uh, through a religious or spiritual frame of reference but apart from that the experiences were quite different from one another and that's often the case when it comes to these altered states of consciousness almost by definition is that you can't pin them down and say you know find a, a classification table of different kinds of experiences because they are unique products of the human mind uh, during the time that you've been, the decades that you've been researching this subject, there have been changes uh, in the world about religious participation and uh, identity. In fact, um, there's been a decline in mainstream religions with measures like church attendance. Uh, but at the same time, there has also been an increase in religious fundamentalism and places around the world how do you understand that yeah it's hard i think um it's um, it certainly is um, a phenomenon that is best understood from a historical sociological and probably economic um point of view rather than psychological per se um but i think um but it's, it's even more complicated if you think about it because we have seen that religious fundamentalism increases in some parts of the world. But we have also seen that non-organized forms of private spirituality also increase, right? So it's sort yes. of like a polarization of the religious landscape uh, in that regard where the one polarity is about you know, cognitive rigidity, whereas the other one is sort of like about a fluid self with no limits. Uh, and I think um, fundamentalism can probably best be explained by international competition between different countries. Like we saw the rise of Islamism uh, occurred following decades of other countries um, providing them with military equipment and uh, 
um, well, sort of uh, being maybe too heavily engaged in their internal affairs. And so they armed themselves to strike back against uh, what they perceived to be the evil enemy. Um, whereas I think the other polarity when it comes to, to uh, the more limitless forms of self-transcending spirituality has a lot to do with the pluralism and individualism that have spiraled in our societies for several decades, which means that anyone who is attempting any structure in society that is attempting to be the legitimate source of truth, for example, will face major obstacles. In fact, we even see how people are turning on science, uh, you know, and say that why should science be a more credible more credible authority than my own subjective sense of how the world is constructed. You know, we live in a post-truth age, and I think that is also being expressed in in the religious and spiritual developments uh, across the world. Sadly, post-truth, in my opinion. Uh, yes, you're right. Um, so have you seen those kinds of changes reflected in your research over the decades? That is uh, a change in the proportion of people who respond one way or another in terms of attachment and religiosity? Or is it too subtle for research to pick it up yet? It's a, it's a great question. I cannot definitively say that I have seen that in my own research over time, that there would have been a change in that. I think it's too, too subtle, but certainly if you would have a microscopic, um, um, what do you say, zoom uh, on the issue and make that center of your design, then you should be able to track it. Uh, over time, but but it would be better. Like I've been doing research on this for like twenty five years, and I think it would have been better if you had a few hundred years, and you certainly would see it, right? <laughs> yes, I, I agree. <clears throat> These kinds of changes take time to manifest themselves. Yeah. Well, Per, you've been enormously generous with your time and your knowledge. Before I let you go, tell us what you're working on now. Oh, I'm working on many different projects now um, not so much not so much about the attachment religion spirituality connection um, if you ask me i've sort of i'm more or less done with that uh, theme um, but i'm working um, i can mention three things very briefly we are now working on an international consensus statement where we're trying to inform uh, courts around the world, uh, how they can think about attachment in the context of custody disputes and um, uh, child overprotection cases. And that's a very important uh, topic to deal with because attachment is important for those things. And at the same time, it's often being misunderstood and misrepresented. So we want to say what we have evidence for and what we don't have evidence for. And that's a very ambitious writing project that involves a lot of the um, prominent figures in attachment theory and research. So it's complicated to get everybody on board and still maintain consensus, which is something that we Swedes are so good at working on. Right? Uh, so that's one thing. Um, and another one is I'm looking at what I call welfare psychology. Um, 
in Sweden and um, in the US, we're making some cross-national comparisons. Right now, we're working on a paper looking at uh, trust in um, official institutions in society and how they are related to attachment. Uh, and a third strand of research deals with um, attachment in children of mothers who have an intellectual disability and these children's development over time as well. So everything has to do with attachment in one way or the other, but it's really different kinds of projects that I'm working on. And they're all big projects, enormously important. The, uh, the custody guidelines, that would be wonderful. It's, sometimes those situations are just uh, heartbreaking. Yeah, so, yeah, they are. And yeah. so stay in tune. I guess it will appear within a year or so. Okay, I'll stay tuned. Uh, Pear, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed talking with you. And thank you for your work as well. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikoff. Thank you so much, Renee. I enjoyed it too. Bye-bye now. Bye.